Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. Today, first impressions from two especially remarkable freshman members of Congress. A native of Lexington, a town in rural Missouri, Josh Hawley served from 2017 to earlier this year as the Attorney General of Missouri. Last year, he ran for the Senate as a Republican, defeating the Democratic incumbent Claire McCaskill by six points. At 39, Josh Hawley is the youngest member of the Senate. A native of Boynton Beach, Florida, Michael Waltz received a commission in the United States Army immediately after graduating from the Virginia Military Institute. He served in Afghanistan, then he served in the office of the Secretary of Defense, and then he served in the White House of President George W. Bush. And then he co-founded defense consulting firm Metis Solutions. This past November, Mr. Waltz, a Republican, was elected to the House from the 6th District of Florida. The district, the district centers on Daytona Beach. Michael Waltz is the first Green Beret ever elected to Congress. Josh Hawley and Mike Waltz, welcome. Thank you. Fellas, why did you do it? Let's start with you. Stanford University, Yale Law School, then a term as Attorney General of Missouri. So here's the reality that you're living at this moment in an alternative universe. You're finishing your term as Attorney General, and then you're going to go with a big national firm in its St. Louis or its Kansas City office, and you're going to go through your 40s and 50s raising kids in the best place in the world to raise kids, the American Midwest, making a pile of loot. And instead of living in that alternative universe, you're here in the United States Senate. Senators aren't poor, but it's not what you might have done. Josh? I beg your pardon, Senator, what's the protocol here? We better establish, I've known you Just since you were fine. an undergraduate. My, and Mike's and right. My, all right, yeah, please. so what are you doing? Well, look, first of all, thanks for having me, Peter. It's great to, great to be with you, great to see you. I remember our first meeting uh, when I was, I think, 18, right, in your office at uh, the Hoover Institution at Stanford. I came by to see you as an undergraduate. I was a freshman that year. So, I have not uh, aged. You haven't way. changed it, uh, no, no, not a day. You haven't no, changed, no. and fortunately I have. but. Uh, uh, listen, I think that it is a critical, critical time for our country. I mean, we are at a major generational turning point. A whole era in American politics is coming to an end. You know, the post-war era I, is how I think of it. That runs from right. the late 40s until just the last few years. I mean, that era in American politics is over. We're facing tremendous challenges as a country. Our middle class is in a state of collapse. Our middle class way of life is under serious threat. We've got the courts are hanging in the balance. We have a, a new threats rising all around us in the world. I mean, and a new generation. I'm the youngest member of the Senate, as you said, uh, and also uh, one of the first uh, members of a new generation to, to be elected. So uh, it is a significant turning point, and uh, I feel so. Like you are leading important. a purpose-driven life, to quote the best-selling book. You're serious about this. I am. I am. It's the only reason to do it. Mike, yeah. uh, here's your uh, here's your problem, at least as it appears to my mind. United States Army, not just the United States Army, Green Beret. You guys are sent in to get stuff done. Yep. And then you work in the Secretary of Defense. So the Pentagon can be bureaucratic, but in the office of the Secretary of the Defense, the idea is to get stuff done. Yep. And then the White House, the pinnacle of the executive branch. And then you founded a company. You have been in one doing job after another. And now here you are in a talking job. Why? As veterans, a couple of things. Uh, one. We're at a record low in terms of veterans in our Congress and in the Senate in our nation's history. We've gone from a peak of 80% in the 1970s 
to a low in our nation's history of around 15% right now. And I think that explains that record low, so explains only, a lot of the dysfunction. Only Why? roughly one in six members of Congress right. has any actual experience That's of right. service. That's right. And it's not so much the issues or veterans or military issues or foreign policy. It's the ethos that we bring. Right. So in, I can tell you, in combat, in the foxhole, in the plane, in the ship, nobody cares about race, religion, creed, socioeconomic background, political party. It's not as though I'm in the black helicopter in the middle of the night going after al-Qaeda going, are you a Democrat or a Republican? Are you Hispanic? Or Nobody cares. You're about mission. You're about country. You're about getting things done. So I think the more veterans that we get on both sides of the aisle, I would prefer they be Republican, but on both sides of the aisle, the better. Because we're, we have that commonality of service. Secondly, uh, I, you know, I got to be honest with you. I agree with Josh in many ways. I think our, I did not put my life on the line from the earliest days for a country that's going to move towards socialism, for a country that is going to move towards one size fits all from Washington or greater government control. I fought for an America that I believed where the sky's the limit for anybody who plays by the rule and works hard to achieve their American uh, dream, not to have the government take it from you. So I think the idea of what America is, uh, is, is, is under a lot of threat, not only from the inside, but from the outside. From the outside, we face a metastasizing Islamic extremism threat that's growing. Uh, we face, I don't like to call them near peer anymore. They are peer competitors in many ways from space to missiles in China. The Chinese. A resurgent uh, Russia that's not moving in our interests, overlaid with 22 trillion and growing in national debt. So how do we defend those liberties as we hash out what they mean? Right. Uh, how do we defend them? And I think uh, we can either yell at the television and post That's on Facebook. I and I do that too. Or we can get in the arena and be part of the solution. Right. So I stepped up to get things done. So got it. I've got the ideals yeah. and I believe you. You're both serious. Now, here's the question. You are now one of 100. In the AG's office in Missouri, you ran it. Right. You are now one of 435. Oh, yeah. And there's nobody giving orders. That's right. There is nobody in command. Yeah. Uh, so let's go through a little bit of what it's actually like. Truly, your first impressions of right. this chamber. Polarization. How bad is it? About what you expected? Worse? Dealing with Democrats? Oh, uh, it's very polarized. And, and I would say it's worse. I mean, look, Washington is... Worse in, than you expected? Yeah, worse than I expected. I mean, Washington is every bit as dysfunctional as it looks from the outside, is my impression. Maybe yeah. worse. And in the Senate, at least, part of the reason for that is half the Democrat senators are running for president. I mean, the truth is, Peter, that the Democrats would just as soon we switch off the lights, everybody go home, and we do no work for the next 10 years. They don't want to work. They don't want to get anything accomplished. They are focused entirely on 2020 and beating Donald Trump. It's all politics all the time. You talk about getting prescription drug prices down, they don't want to do it. You talk about securing the border, they don't want to do it. They just want to go out and politic, and it's a huge problem. And what about the House? Well, House, I, House it's, it's more... slightly different now right, with, right. The, with you know, the other side in the majority. They are trying to get things done, most of which I disagree with. So we've rolled out Medicare for all which is very cleverly named because it's not Medicare at all. Medicare is government paid for right. health care. They're looking for government run health care, which would kick 160 million Americans off of their private insurance. So the Democrats are charging ahead uh, with their agenda. So, uh, and, and, and many of which, but, but I do think 
you know, I do want to make this point. I do think, particularly with veterans on the other side, we can find common ground. So has that there happened? are things? Yes, it, have yes, you got it buddies? has. There have are you things. Made whether on it the other is side? whether it is water issues in Florida, which is not only an economic issue, it's a um, it's it's just a way of life issue. I mean, right. water is everything uh, in Florida. Someone has grew up on the beach. There's transportation and infrastructure needs that I'm talking to people. The highway reauthorization right. bill is coming up in 2020. You know, there's national security issues that we see a lot of common ground. For example, staying engaged in Syria, staying engaged uh, against the Islamic extremist threat in Afghanistan, right. where I'm seeing eye to eye with, with a number of, there are, there is a group of moderate Democrats who I, we are seeing eye to eye with. I mean, this is, I think, somewhat more unique in the House. That is, we're starting to see that fracture with many of their radical liberal uh, colleagues. See. The Democrats have a decision to make. Are they yeah. going to go hard left as a party? That's or right. are the moderates going and to And they haven't away? sorted that out at all. And you can see them struggling with that, That's, some of and, them. And, and I'm finding issues where we can get things done with some of those more moderate Josh, things. what about leadership? Here, a new book by congressional expert Jeff Bergner. Actually, this is from a recent interview. Quote, Authorizing committees rarely debate programs, leaving appropriating committees to find and authorize programs as they see fit. Yet appropriations committees struggle to pass just a handful of bills each year because leadership has centralized power in the Senate Majority Leader and the Speaker's offices. There, legislation is commonly written quickly, sloppily, and at the last minute. Close quote. So the real power lies in the hands of, the, of your leader, Senator Mitch McConnell, and his staff. Now, you don't want to take on your leader. You'd be, let me tell you right now, you'd be foolish to insult Mitch McConnell. <laughs> but what do you make of that? Well, look, I think particularly when it comes to the way that we do the budget and that Congress does the budget, I've said this before, it's a stupid process. I mean, this is a stupid process that is broken. It hasn't worked in years. Congress hasn't actually obeyed the terms of the statute that governs the budget since 1997. I mean, that's how long it's been since they've actually completed the budget process. It's totally broken. One of the reasons it's broken is the divide that you mentioned between the appropriations and authorizing committees. My view is we need to overhaul this. I mean, we don't have to do it this way. We don't have to proceed on this basis. We get ourselves into these, uh, these cliffhangers where we have these massive omnibus bills that leadership forces on you. Nobody has a chance to read it. That's stupid. The American people know it's stupid. We shouldn't be doing it this way. How many, member, how many of your colleagues feel the same way? Oh, I, I think a lot. I mean, I think a lot of them. And, and the, and the so real question is... when you're in a is, conference, does, does anybody say, uh, Leader McConnell, we'd like to... We'd like to discuss the budget process. No, how it, because how does it, it happen? Now? Well, I think at this, I think that there is a real path dependency. This is one of the virtues of being new, uh, and not. Uh, and look, I did not serve in the House, so I don't come from a legislative background at all. Yeah. So I think you know sometimes folks who've been in Congress a long time, they develop these path dependencies. They think, well, this must be the only way to do it. This isn't the only way to do it. Yeah. We don't have to do it this way. But Josh it's shows up and says, "This is stupid. This is dumb," <laughs> okay. and people know it's dumb, and, and we should change it. All right. can, I just, can I just sure. jump in on that? So the good news and bad news. Uh, bad news is agreed. The vast majority of the, of the budget process has completely broken down. One bit of on your good, side, it runs through on, the Speaker's house. That's right. It runs speaker's through the Speaker and the, and, the, and the bills that they've thrown uh, out on the floor so far. None of them have gone through committee. None have gone through regular order or markup. They just throw them out there. Good news is the one bill that has moved for the last four decades in a row is the National Defense Authorization Act and then the appropriation that goes through that. I think we're both on the Armed Services Committee. So right. at least you know, your viewers should rest somewhat at ease that our military has a history of bipartisan 
uh, authorization and appropriation to move uh, to move that through. But to, to you know, I, I'd like to make one other point sure. that that has struck me. I think, and I'd encourage Josh to to jump on this bandwagon. I think the sixty vote rule that that I think some people uh. act like is ensconced in our our constitution is not is ridiculous. We need to move to fifty one. Votes. You're talking about the, the last rule for most legislation right. in the Senate requires 60, 60 votes. votes. Uh, Senator, here we have a member of the well, House. Let me, who, let me just leave you with this statistic. Over, of the upper chamber. No, uh, over 400 pieces of legislation moved through the House in the last Congress only to die in the Senate. So we're really beholden to a half dozen Democratic senators who don't even really have to go and filibuster. It's just the threat of the filibuster. Right. I mean, I would encourage Leader McConnell to at least make them stand up there on their feet and filibuster, but it's just the threat of it, and it, and it slows down. I have colleagues saying, well, I want to push this, if you but I'm make, not going to push it through. If you want to make notes on the there things you're supposed to take up with the leader. In the House, they're saying I'm not going to push it through because it'll never get through the Senate, therefore we don't votes. do it. August tradition of the Listen, Senate, but we, it is not in the Constitution. It, it's, it's not. A few a, decades old. We talked a lot, I talked a lot about this during my campaign. I, I think the way that the filibuster, the contemporary filibuster is done, uh, is, uh, is not a very smart thing to do. And look, just look at, forget for a second legislation, just look at the appointments. President Trump still has maybe half of his government, of his administration, yeah. open, vacant, empty, why? Because the Democrats are stalling every single nomination. You know, the, the Republicans have had to file cloture. Mitch McConnell has had to file cloture. That's when you say, okay, look, let's have a vote on the filibuster and, and actually stop it. He's had to do that 128 times on Donald Trump nominees mm -hmm. in just two years. 128 times. By comparison, how many times that was it done under Barack Obama? I mean, I think it was a handful. It was 12. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. So the Democrats have had the, the Senate completely tied up. And I think we can all agree that, look, let's begin with the president's nominees. There is What's no the reason we should be doing though, this. The leader, leader McConnell does not want to give it the up. The counter argument is one day the, the, the Democrats will control the Senate again. We're not going to have the Senate, unfortunately, right. I think, the rest of history. And, and then we'll be in trouble. My argument is there are plenty of checks and balances between federal, state, local, the House, the Senate. The, the courts, the presidency, there are plenty of checks and balances against the de Josh? Democrats taking the Senate and then pushing I, I don't think, policy. you know, particularly when it comes to executive branch nominees, I don't think there is a good counter argument. And I, I think that you will see, I think you will see a rule change uh, coming in, in the next few months. I really do. The next so, few months? I do. When it comes to in executive, this in this Congress, when it comes to executive branch nominees, I think people have had, the, even the folks who have been here the longest in the United States Senate on the Republican side, I think they're saying the Democrats have abused this process beyond recognition. We have to change it. Got it. Listen, the problem of special interests, uh, you went to Stanford, Milton Friedman, James Buchanan, these Nobel Prize winners who identified this as a permanent problem in a democracy. You have the diffuse national interest, let's say, in a reasonable budget, right? But then you have special interests that are very powerfully affected by this piece of legislation or that piece of legislation, they have incentives to organize, hire lobbyists, and put pressure on you guys. So here you have, outside those windows, this town is filled. There are 535 members of Congress, there are thousands of lobbyists, and some of them are paid many million, some of them are paid even more than you guys would have been paid if you stayed in the <laughs> private sector. And they are representing special interests and coming after you. And it's just you and you standing there on behalf of the national interest. Mm -hmm. 
with the result that the deficit keeps growing and growing and growing. Is there a solution, just at the conceptual level, how do we solve the problem of, of special interests? And how do, you, how do you encounter it in practice, Josh? Well, I think you have to be willing to stand up and say, I, I'm not going to give ground. I mean, this is, I was sent here to represent the people of my state, to represent what is best for them and the good of the country, and I'm just not going to be bullied. Already, I have had votes already on the Judiciary Committee when I said, look, I'm going to question every nominee to make sure that his or her views are consistent with the Constitution of the United States. I'm not going to take anybody's word for it. I don't care who that anybody is. I'm going to make sure that they are pro-Constitution judges who don't believe in making up rights from the bench. And I've already had multiple groups on our side of the aisle say, no, you sit down and shut up and do what we tell you to do. And what I said to them is, that's not going to happen. I'm going to do my job. And I think we, we need more folks who are willing to be vocal like that and say, listen, we're going to do our jobs. I think if you got more people doing that, we'd have a better system. Yeah, he, he makes it sound simple. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, look, it, I, I think if you take that approach, it is very simple. I mean, I'm I'm representing 750,000 people, roughly, from Northeast Florida. My, they are the boss. I'm their employee. Uh, you know, I'm here to represent their interests, and obviously, voting voting my conscience based on my experiences. And that's it. I think if you have folks who come from the private sector like we do, who have lives other than being a politician, who don't necessarily want to just get reelected and reelected and reelected until we're dead. Uh, That's that actually are, important. You guys, you, you know, two then, don't then need I these think, jobs. What's that? You don't need no, these I'm jobs. Not, my, my entire self-identity isn't wrapped around being a politician. I'm very proud of my service in the military as a Green Beret, as a business owner, as someone who's tried to make a difference you know, in the White House and the Pentagon, and, and that's it. The press, the press. Um, you, as a member of the Judiciary Committee, raised questions, this is within the last couple of weeks, about one of the president's nominees to the federal bench, Judge Naomi Rao. In the end, you voted, to send, you voted positively to send her nomination to the floor of the Senate. But in the meantime, you questioned her credentials, and you got smacked yeah. twice on the editorial pages of the biggest circulation newspaper in the country, the Wall Street Journal. Now. I am. A, I suppose you have friends. You know how to handle the St. Louis Post Dispatch. But what does a senator from Missouri, who is a body one of one hundred, do when he gets smacked around by the Wall Street Journal? His job. He does his job, which is not to count out of the press, which is not to count out of the special interests, which is to ask the tough questions and get answers. And you know what the result of my asking tough questions was, Peter? I got answers. It took multiple tries. But I finally got answers. I got commitments from this particular nominee that she would abide by the Constitution's text, that she did not believe in this doctrine called substantive due process, which is where judges just make stuff up, uh, that she did not believe uh, that much of the court's recent, the Supreme Court's recent jurisprudence on substantive due process is proper. So that, that was a big deal. It took, it took a while to get it, but I did get it. And those are the sorts of tough questions with real answers that we have a job to do. I don't care who criticizes me. I'm gonna go on doing my job because that's what I was elected to do. And as you pointed out, I don't need this job. I'm not here for my own gratification. I'm here to serve the interests of the people of Missouri and the Constitution of the United States. And I'm gonna do that no matter what. Congressman Waltz, you, you have, if any, you may have something like the opposite problem in that Daytona Beach, I honestly, I don't know the D Daytona Beach newspaper Daytona Journal. The Daytona Journal. I'll send you a copy. All right, so you, so I'm sure you are. They know you. You know yeah, the folks at yeah, the Daytona yeah. Journal. 
but you have a fairly diffuse district. Daytona is in the yeah, middle. Yeah, we you have go Orlando. We have Jacksonville. Yeah. So how do you how do you first of all in general? I don't know about the Daytona sure. paper, but sure. in general the press is the press, and it's opposed to conservatives and free in general. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. How do you communicate with your constituents? Well. You know, one is get on the ground with them. I mean, we knocked. So you're home every week. We knocked over uh, in the campaign, you know, over a quarter million doors between uh, my team and I. We just we were getting outspent left, right and center from Bloomberg, Soros, the Democratic National Party, you name it. And we just went, stood on porches and said, this is me and this is what I stand for and this is what I want to do. So that's one way. You just go around them. Uh, Secondly, is I also go national. As, as much as I can, whether that's CNN Fox, or example, Fox, CNN, I was right. a Fox contributor before, and speak to folks, uh, speak to folks that way. But to your point and and being criticized by the press, who I think the American people see past it. I mean, look at the election of, of of President Trump. They really do. They're they're tired of being told what to think. Uh, and I'm going to sit there. That the greatest thing I can do, Peter, and I think Josh as well, is just fall back on our experience, which we bring a, a decent amount to the table, and say. I, number one, I reject the premise of the question, which I end up saying a lot because there's such tilted questions that come at you. And then number two, say that's really interesting. Here's my experience, whether in combat or in business or out talking to people on their front porch, and that's the basis for my decision, not you know whatever garbage they're throwing at you. All right, this brings us to the President of the United States. Mm-hmm. We'll start with a special case between you and the President. Sure. It's clear that the president, all his instincts are to get out of Syria and Afghanistan. Now, John Bolton and others may slow him down, and the president will make a statement, and then they'll back and fill a little bit. Still, he wants out. That's clear. And this is Mike Waltz speaking not too terribly long ago. At some point, we need to drive towards some type of negotiated peace agreement in Afghanistan. I don't know that now is the time. Close quote. So his instinct is out, and Mike Waltz, having served in Afghanistan and yeah. knowing a lot about Iraq and Syria says, not so fast, Mr. President. Yeah. And what kind of trouble does that get you in with your constituents? Does the what has the White House, how does this work? Yeah. So, so let's go again, let's just go back to my experience. Sure. Right. And, and, and I, before I do that, I share the president's frustration. Nobody wants out and wants to bring the soldiers home more than the soldiers that have to go fight. I'm right. actually still serving in the National Guard of 23 years in. Now and so one of my units just got back from Afghanistan again uh, after multiple tours. We can spend the rest of this hour talking about too hard, too long, too expensive. You know where does it all go? But at the end of the day, we have to stay on offense. We have to keep our foot on the neck of these terrorist groups. I think the the administration and the president deserves a lot of credit for reversing the failed policies of the Obama administration and destroying the caliphate. Mm-hmm. ISIS is destroyed as a country, but it's not destroyed as a movement. And we can either fight these wars, no matter how frustrating they may be, and, we, and there's a lot of ways we can do it better. I, fought, I wrote a whole book about it, but we can either fight them in places like Kabul and Damascus, or they will follow us home to places like Kansas City or St. Louis or Orlando. And I think, you know, Peter, I think bottom line, there is a very misguided notion here, and, Rand, and Josh's colleague, Rand Paul, is one of the leaders uh, you know, of, of this notion, and it's on both sides of the aisle, of just let them handle it. You know, what are we doing fighting over right. there? Just let them handle it, and let's bring the soldiers home, you know, and, and let's play defense. And, and I think that is so utterly misguided. Has 
you worked in the W. Bush, w yeah, George I worked w. for Bush Vice White President House. Cheney. You worked for Vice President Cheney. Counterterrorism advisor. So do you have, how does it work? How do you have a voice in this? Do you have friends on the National Security Council? Are there sure. people to whom you speak about this? Well, there's folks I speak to in the Pentagon. I mean, there's just a number okay. of different right. entry points. So I'm on armed work, services. You have a network of friends and colleagues. That's and right. You, that gives you a voice. Having having a platform with national media is is also incredibly Got important. It. We've seen Got Senator it. Graham use that, I, I think, very right. effectively. And and I'll tell you back with respect to the president. I, I think he very, feels very strongly, but he also will listen. Yes, we've seen we've seen him shift his stance uh, on Syria to keep a footprint there, and I think we've seen him shift now on Afghanistan as well. At the end of the day, America has to lead. Right. When we don't, we see what happened when President Obama pulled out of Iraq. Bad things fill the vacuum. Okay. Josh, the House Oversight, the President again, we're on the President here. The House Oversight Committee has already devoted a dreary and almost endless day of hearings to Michael Cohen. As we record this, the Mueller report is supposed to come out, well, every week it's supposed to come out next week. Sooner or later, it won't actually be published unless the Attorney General wants bits of it published, but sooner or later the thing will be filed with the Attorney general. And we know, Mike has just made this point, you made the point, that the Democratic Party is already the playing the game of 2020. They want the president in place and wounded, and they want him to remain a target for the next 18 months. You came here to get things done, and yet this strange stasis of a president of whose character you can't entirely approve. You're a married man with two little kids from the Midwest. There have to be aspects of this that are hard for you to take, but he's your president. You wanna get things done. Somehow or other, Donald Trump and the scandals are lying on this town like a mattress. So I was thinking to myself, if I were Josh, I could see about three different choices for the next 18 months. Stand back and say, I don't know whether he's guilty or innocent. Let the hearings take their course, one. Two, say, this is partisan. I, I don't defend every aspect of the president's character or his business dealings, but his policies are fundamentally sound and I'm with him. Or three, go on offense and say whatever scandals they are investigating are far outweighed by the scandal of Malpractice by the Defense Department, by the Department of Justice, and the FBI, and a press that is clearly biased. So those—that seems to me sort of the menu of options for Josh Hawley, who, however, can't be happy to have to choose from that menu because he wanted to get stuff done. What is your duty toward the president and your party over the next 18 months? Well, look—I mean, the duty is to get the facts, and uh, I'll say this as a former prosecutor. I mean, you mentioned the fact that I've served as Missouri's attorney general, the chief law enforcement officer of, of that state. And uh, listen, if Bob Mueller has evidence of collusion, which, by the way, conspiracy would be actually the actual the crime, crime there. I mean, so right. if, he, if he has evidence of it, let's have it for crying out loud. I mean, we've been waiting and waiting and waiting. He has spent how many millions of dollars now and consumed how many taxpayer resources in the form of attorneys and investigators. So let's have the evidence, if there's evidence, number one. Number two, the malpractice in the FBI that we have seen. You've got Andrew McCabe out there, the former acting director of the FBI, now admitting that he launched a counterintelligence investigation, something Mike knows a lot about, a yeah. counterintelligence investigation that is staggering. of the President of the United States. Why? Because he disagreed with the President's foreign policy. He was alarmed 
by comments the president made on the campaign trail. Listen, Constitution gives the president of the United States the authority to set the nation's foreign policy, right. not the unelected FBI, which is why I have demanded answers from the FBI. I said, I want to know who launched this investigation. I want to know who's involved with it. I want to know when it's terminated. And I want those answers now. So uh, we have got to get a control, a hand, a handle on the FBI and what the president often calls the deep state. It's real. It's out there. It's off the leash. It's time to get them back on the leash for the sake of democratic government. And it's time to move on and get some stuff done, like securing the border, like getting prescription drug prices down, cost of health insurance. We've got a lot to do. By the way, Let's what's, get it done. what's your position on the president's declaring a national emergency on the, on the border? Listen, you know, I, I, I hear all of this hysteria from the media about the president is claiming unprecedented powers. Whatever you think about it, the, let's get the facts right. The right. president is invoking a statute that Congress passed in 1976 right. that has been used over, I believe it's over 50 times. 56 times, according there to you are. the journal this morning. So right. this is a commonly used statute. The only question here is, has he invoked it properly? The idea that all oh, this is unprecedented, it's not unprecedented. It's according to the rule of law. So the question, if I get to vote or have to vote on this resolution of disapproval, my only question will be, does the crisis at the border amount to a national emergency? I have to say, based on the facts I've seen, I think it probably does. Peter, can I just add to yes, that? You know, we're right in the thick of it in the House right now. Of course in terms you are. Of and you know, at the end of the day, we only have one president at a time. He's the commander-in-chief. His success is our country's success, period. And, and those that just wish him to fail are, in my mind, are wishing America to fail. I mean, they wish him to fail because they don't like him, they don't like his character, they don't like his past, his business dealings, what have you. Uh, I just find that somewhat reprehensible. You know, I may not agree with you know, every policy position, but I have a duty to stand up based on my experience, but I agree with a heck of a lot of what he's actually doing. And if we would get past the tweet of the day and look at what he's actually doing in terms of making our economy better and moving this country forward, there's a vast amount that I absolutely disagree with and that I think, I mean, that I absolutely agree with right. and I think we need to, we need to get behind. So it's, just, it's, just, it's nowhere in our That's Constitution just, that you impeach a, a commander-in-chief because you don't like him. Right, right. Uh, Can, I, just a political question. Do you find yourselves in this bind when you go home in the weekends? There are some of your constituents who just are going to be pro-Trump for the policy reasons and because he, because you both, you both represent districts that you could argue fit into this category of the overlooked Midwest or that overlooked middle section of, of Florida. It's not hot Miami. It's, all right. But there are bound to be some of your constituents who can't believe that you are su supporting the president. Do you find, it, it, does this make for difficult town halls? Do you feel, do you feel tension over the president at home? You know, I, for my part, having just come off the campaign trail, yes. Peter, I mean, just very recently, yeah. I've spent a lot of time talking to the people of Missouri. And yes. what the people of Missouri want is, number one, they think all of this name-calling in Washington and this constant investigation, and this, they think it's, it, that it's just politics, and it is just politics. I mean, it, it, it is politics through <laughs> and through. So what they want to see is actual results. You know what? They voted, the people of Missouri voted for Donald Trump by almost 20 points in 2016. Now, they did that because they listened to him and they say, this guy gets it. You know, our way of life is under threat. The middle class way of life is in a state of collapse. China has been eating our lunch for decades. We've been shipping our jobs overseas to them. They've built their middle class on the backs of our middle class. Our schools are crumbling. Our communities are crumbling. Here's somebody who finally says, enough of this. We're going to do something about it. 
we're going to fight for America, be proud of America, have a strong America. My constituents listen to that and they say, that's exactly right. So let's get on with it. And they're right. And, and Daytona Beach? I, look, I think the president is a symptom of a people's craving for authenticity. And so even when we agree or disagree, they just want to know where I authentically am and that it's backed up with some level of credibility. Uh, and, and that's it. I mean, it, right. they, they really want, they, they want someone who's authentic and they're tired of being bamboozled or hearing a bunch of BS, if I can say that on this. BS, you're allowed, <laughs> we, you're allowed to say BS. Pass. All right, the Republican Party, you're 39, you're 45, Donald Trump is 72. The chances are very good that both of you will outlast him if you choose to remain here sure. in this town. Let me quote uh, Karl Rove writing not long ago, Republicans must advance their own agenda. The reservoir of generally accepted conservative policy prescriptions must be refilled. Congressional Republicans need to develop their own ideas. How's that project coming along? Look, uh, the Republican Party is not in a good state. Let's be honest. I mean, let's be honest. The, the, we have a lot of work to do for the future of this party. I mean, this is a party people look at and they say, why would I vote for this? Donald Trump won because he wasn't a standard issue Republican. Right. Yeah. Because people looked at him and they said, thank goodness. I mean, here's somebody who finally talks about something that's relevant to me. For too long, this party has talked in a way that resonates with nobody except for, I mean, let's be honest, people on the coast. I mean, people on Wall Street, uh, people on uh, the left coast in California. I mean, if, if, if you are part of that top echelon of our economy who are doing great no matter what, well, then sure. I mean, you, you love the policies of the two major parties. But if you live in the middle of the country, you're working hard to try and feed your family, to try to pay for education, to try to pay for childcare. Nobody's been talking to you. That's why President Trump got elected. And Republicans have a heck of a lot of work to do to actually be the party that represents working people, that actually fights for working people, and actually will protect the best of America and our, our American way of life. And I think we're not there yet. Mike, listen, well, let me give you, yeah, yeah. listen to a couple of statistics. This is the Harvard Institute of Politics polling Americans 18 to 29 sure. just this past autumn. Percentage that calls itself Republican, 21. Democratic, 41. Percentage that approves of Donald Trump, 26. Percentage that calls itself conservative, 30. Liberal, 39. One last figure. Percentage that approves of Republicans in Congress, 25. That approves of Democrats in Congress, 40%. Demographically, the country is slipping away from you, Mike. What are you going to do about it? Well, I'm going to reject the premise of the question. Ah. <laughs> and I set so, it up so I worked so I know, hard to I set know, that I up. I know, but I mean, I, I don't think that's, that's probably that attypical historically, giving a, given a younger, younger demographic, Actually, whether that in, was in, in the, the 60s Reagan, or In the Reagan the years, which I'm here to rep tell you I can yeah. remember, in the Reagan years, the demographic that gave President Reagan the highest approval rating was the youngest demographic. I would argue probably not in the 60s, 70s, 90s, that I don't 2000s. Know. That I don't know. But... Uh, to your point of communicating, yes. what does it mean to be a conservative? What does it mean to value individual liberties? What does it mean to value individual responsibility? What does it mean to really be able to build something as an entrepreneur and, and grow? Uh, I think we have a lot of work to do. I, I, I agree with Josh in that regard. But at the end of the day, uh, one of the things that I want to push on that younger demographic that I think we have moved away from is this sense of service. 
And what I mean by that is not necessarily military service, not wearing uniform, not returning to a draft, but how do we get America serving each other again? Inner city tutoring, rural medicine, uh, health care, elderly care, um, national parks, Peace Corps. One of the, I think, from a societal standpoint that we're missing from the draft is at an early age, at a formative age, 18 years old, you pulled together all elements mm -hmm, of our society. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Detroit, LA, West Georgia, Missouri, and you were forced together, whether you're black, white, right. brown, whatever, right. to serve a broader cause. Right. How do we get young people off their couch, off their television, off their video games, and serving a common cause again? And I think there's something to look at going back to national service. So, Senator, you both have said we have a lot of work to do. My question, where will that work take place? Policy committees in Congress? The think tanks? Are there enough scholars who are friendly to your point of view in universities? Seriously, genuinely. Yeah, go ahead. You, yeah. you may expand on that one. <laughs> yeah, but no, look, that answer. Look, the press is against you. Universities, broadly speaking, are against you, sometimes virulently against you. Who does the hard work of flesh of refilling the reservoir of conservative policy? Well, listen, it, it starts with actually listening to voters. And that's something that, I mean, let's just be honest. That's something the Republican Party has not done well in recent years. They haven't mm -hmm. actually listened to the concerns of voters. Once again, why did President Trump win? Because he actually listened and represented the concerns of voters. Voters are concerned about being able to raise a family. They're concerned about the power that these big corporations in combination with big government have over their lives. We haven't talked yet about Silicon Valley, but we should be very concerned about the power of these tech companies who control information flow, who have more personal private data that they collect on us than anybody in the history of the world. They exercise tremendous power over our lives. People are concerned about that. And they're concerned about whether or not we are going to be able to have a middle class in this country, or whether China is gonna completely decimate it and our other competitors on the way to building their own military and economic strength. I mean, those are, these are the things they're concerned about. And I think for too long, and I say this as a relatively young person, for too long, Republican Party, you listen to the Republican Party, it sounds like we're still in the 1980s. The 1980s was a great time. One of the things President Reagan was greatest about was he forced the party to start addressing real people's concerns. I mean, you remember, you were there. He talked in a way different than most Republican politicians. We're due for another generational change in that way. And that's the urgent need of our hour. I just say in one of the key, one of the key things that we missed, particularly in the last in the last Congress, when we had all three, when we had all three houses was healthcare. And so we have this debate moving forward. And this affects all aspects of our lives, our national budget, our defense budget everything, the cost of care. And I think we just need to do a much better job of communicating. When we say lower the cost of care, we mean it. When the Democrats say lower the cost of care, they mean for the government to absorb it. Right. Right. And so whether that's tort reform, across state lines, portability of insurance, we, we need to actually get serious about putting forth some policy proposals. And I think it needs to come out of both of these houses when okay. you ask where they're going to come from. It's just going to take leadership to do. Congress and the nation. New York Times columnist Ross Douthat. This is a longish quotation, but you'll both understand where he's going here and why I'm using it. Yeah. Our presidents have claimed broad and ever-expanding national security powers because Congress would rather not take responsibility for anything as fraught as a declaration of war. Our courts have taken on an outsized role in debates over sex and religion, 
race and culture, because those are issues that most politicians are extremely uneasy debating and voting on. In some cases, Congress is ceding power out of incapacity, but just as often it's ceding by choice, deferring to the imperial presidency, welcoming the encroachments of the administrative state, and looking to the juristocracy for refuge and support on difficult and polarizing issues. It is a good word, juristocracy. Congress has been abdicating power. Article one of the Constitution, yep. Congress. Not two, not three, Article one. Right. And Congress has been abdicating power for years now. What is the prospect that Congress will reclaim its place in the constitutional order? Josh? Uh, well, I, this is, he's absolutely right. And I can tell you as a constitutional lawyer, the fact that Congress has given away all this authority to unelected bureaucrats, to unelected judges, is hugely concerning. I mean, it, it's disastrous for our Constitution. So what's it going to take? Well, it's actually going to take some courage on the part of Congress. I mean, my observation is, in my brief time uh, in, the, in the Senate, is that too often uh, elected members would just rather, if it's controversial, they don't want to touch it. You know, they would rather have somebody else take the heat than have to vote on it. If they have to vote on it and put their names on the line, oh boy, well, let, let's find a way around that. That is not the way our Constitution is written. That is not leadership. We're going to have to make the tough choices and be willing to stand and take the heat for them. Until Congress is willing to do that, I don't see much hope for reversing this trend. So uh, what's your sense about your younger colleagues? You know, I, I detect them, and I can't speak for anybody but myself, Peter. I want to be right, clear right, about right. that. Course, but I, I detect among the, the younger members an impatience with the, the old way of doing things. You know, whether it's the budget, uh, whether it's the administrative state, I hear a lot of my younger colleagues saying, wait a minute, you know, we came here to get things done. Uh, wait a minute, the people of my state elected me to actually achieve something for them. Uh, we, why do we have to do things this way? It's a great series of questions to ask, and I, I hope that you'll see some change coming from that. I think one of the interesting debates you're going to see that uh, is over earmarks and whether we should return to earmarks. You better explain what earmarks well, are. Well, earmarks allow individual members to, to put specific items into various authorizations, appropriations. This money goes to a for their districts, and, and we, on such and such a county that's road. That's right. Well, and, but what ha the, the amount of money is essentially the same and, of course, growing right. because our budget is you know, is, is forever growing and our deficit. But with, with walking away from earmarks, essentially we shifted that power over to the unelected bureaucrats and right. the executive branch, right. the deputy under assistant secretary of you name it, right. and transportation or health and human services. Right. So the money is still being apportioned out, but rather than your elected representatives having a voice in where those monies go, it's now somewhere lost in the executive Branch and I think uh, uh, Senator Ben Sass also made a great. If you haven't watched his um, his, I think what was his opening five minutes during the Kavanaugh hearings in terms of this shift of power from from the legislative to the executive and kind of the abdication of doing anything controversial, I, I, I'd highly recommend you, you you take a look at it. So there's a new can't identify it. Not sure what the policy what forms the policy impulses will take. But you both feel there's a new-ish, you're 45, so that's what, you're new, you're an ish. <laughs> there's a new-ish generation that's impatient. I think that's right. On the Hill. Yeah, yeah well, I think they were voted in uh, because of the frustration. Because the people are impatient. The people are frustrated. That's They're right. frustrated with the do nothing. So, you, you know, again, what you saw in 2016, I think, was a symptom of a yearn for authenticity 
and a frustration. There, people were voting politicians out of office as much as they were voting people into office. Come here and get stuff done. Last questions. Biggest happy surprise? What's the nicest thing that you didn't expect about being a senator? Well, I, you know, I will say, first of all, it's a tremendous privilege. I mean, for a guy from a small town, a really small town in rural Missouri, uh, to have the privilege to represent the people of my state is just unbelievable. All of us and, who know you, Josh, are just astounded. <laughs> well, you, you should be. My, my family is a little astounded. But here we are. Uh, it, it's just uh, the biggest thing that really strikes me as I go to work in the morning is just the, the incredible responsibility that comes with this. And... Um, uh, just the, the incredible privilege of getting to do it. But I think in terms of a nice surprise, uh, our colleagues in the Senate are incredibly uh, cordial and pleasant with one another. It really is a friendly place. I think people want, there's this great reservoir of goodwill. People want the Senate on both to sides. be better. I, yes, surprisingly on both sides. People want the Senate to be better. They want Congress to be better. But now it needs to be. And the time to actually get better is here. The time to do better is here. The country expects it of us. And it's time to step up. You know, for me, I think it's the, we talk a lot about the stasis and major legislation, but at an individual level, you really can change lives and, and really? help people in the better. So I, you know, one of the, the, the first meetings I had was for the widower, the husband of a female Navy chief mm -hmm. uh, who was just killed in Syria, uh, killed by a suicide bomber. And, but for a certain Navy regulation, uh, she would not have been there. And we were able to work with the Navy and in two weeks get that thing changed. For and, and, and the family really saw that as her legacy of getting this regulation changed that I don't want to get into it as complicated, but you, know, you did it. We were able to get it done. Uh, so, so I do think as a member, if you're determined to come here and get things done rather than just get reelected forever, uh, you, can, you can do it. Uh, someone who has spent my entire life defending this democracy, I do want to leave you this. To be a part of it now is truly incredible. And for all of the scholars that you quote are all brilliant people, I'm sure, that the wheels are coming off the bus of America and we've never been more divided and oh my God, where, where is the country going? Take some time and travel abroad. Because when you look back on how good we have it in this country, uh, it, 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 we, I think everybody could do well with a little bit of perspective. And having fought in places like Yemen and Afghanistan and Africa, this is by far the greatest country in the world. And we may get ugly sometimes, it may be difficult. Winston Churchill famously said, American democracy is the worst system of government in the world, except all the others, right? We'll be okay. So uh, I now have, I said that was the last question. I lied, this is the last question. All right. I'm so impressed by both of you that I'm worried about burnout. What do you do for fun? I have a 15-year-old daughter. Uh, and, and now I'm even more worried yeah, about right. burnout. Yeah, right. And uh, and I, when I am not doing this, I am I am focused on her. Is but she up here or is she in Florida? She actually, unfortunately, when her mother and I separated, I was up here with the Bush administration, so she is up here. I see. But I do have to say, to be able to escape Washington and go back to a place like Florida, uh, I, we live just off the beach there. So anytime I can run on the beach like I did yesterday, and my You're mind's right. in a great place. What do you yeah. do for fun? I've got two little boys at home, a six-year-old and a four-year-old. By the way, are they here or in Missouri? How have they're, you decided to handle that? They're with me when we're here and then home when I'm home. Nice. So it's, nice. Oh, they travel with you? They, as yeah. much as we can. Uh, so, you know, they are, uh, it's important to us to keep our family together. I talked a lot about that during the campaign. My family is extremely the boys are how old? They're little. Six and four. Six and, yeah, four. six and four. 
And uh, so they are, I, I go home every night and rush home to them as quickly as I can. And uh, you talk about great age. giving you perspective. I mean, you know, yeah. sitting with my little boys, reading to them as I go to sleep at night, I think to myself, this is what it's about. And you know what, this is what most American families, I often think to myself, what, what are other dads and moms in America doing right now? They're doing the same thing. They're putting their kids to bed. They're thinking about their families. They're thinking about the future. And that's what we ought to be thinking about here in Washington. Senator Josh Hawley, Congressman Michael Waltz, thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. For Uncommon Knowledge on the Hoover Institution, I'm Peter Robinson. Mm -hmm.